The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. Christmas Predictions, Stories of St. John Bosco's Prophetism. On Saturday, December 20th, 1862, at the Good Night Talk, Don Bosco said these exact words, By Christmas, one of us will go to heaven. Since no one was sick, each looked rather uneasily after his own affairs. Sunday, December 21st, passed uneventfully. No one was in the infirmary. On December 22nd, after Christmas novena services, Joseph Blangino, a fine ten-year-old lad, took sick and went to the infirmary. Within a few hours, his condition became critical and he was given up by the doctor. The evening of December 23rd, Blangino received Holy Viaticum. At about 10, Don Bosco was in the infirmary talking with Father Rua about the boy's condition. If you wish, I'll willingly sit up with him through the night, Father Rua said. It won't be necessary, Don Bosco replied. There will be no danger until two in the morning. Go to bed now, but have someone call you at two. You'll be needed then. In fact, at that hour, Father Rua administered the anointing of the sick to the boy. At 2.30, Blangino died. The next morning, Don Bosco revealed that he had dreamed of the dying boy that very night. I dreamed that Father Alessonati and my mother, who has been dead these last six years, were nursing Blangino. Father Alessonati was praying on his knees. My mother was smoothing up the bed, and I was sitting nearby. As she got close to the boy, she exclaimed, He's dead. What time is it? I asked. Almost three, I was told. Would that all our boys could die so tranquilly, Father Alessonati remarked. That's when I awoke. Immediately I heard a very loud banging on the sidewalk, as with a board. Blangino is now on his way to eternity, I cried out. I opened my eyes to see if dawn had arisen, but saw nothing. Certain of the youngster's death, I recited the De Profundis. The clock struck 2.30. At the Christmas Midnight Mass, a very large number of boys received communion and prayed for the repose of Blangino's soul. As always on such occasions, the boys felt closer to Don Bosco. On December 28th, one came up to him. "'Will you please give me some advice?' he asked. "'On what?' Don Bosco replied with a smile. "'On my soul.' Well then, for three and a half years you've lived in mortal sin. It can't be. I regularly go to confession to Father Savio. Well then listen. And Don Bosco named some fifty sins that the boy had always concealed. As each was mentioned, the youngster had to admit that it was true and promised to make a good confession. Something even more extraordinary took place toward the end of 1862. As in Blangino's case, there were over 600 witnesses. Albert, a strapping 16-year-old student, had taken a turn for the worse through the evil influence of Felix, a schoolmate of his native town. As was always the case in such instances, Albert shunned Don Bosco as much as he could. The latter sent for him several times, but Albert always balked. Finally, one November day, as he was rushing down the stairs, he found himself face to face with Don Bosco and blushed red as a beet. Albert, why do you keep running away from me? Don Bosco asked, gripping his hand. Don Bosco wants to help you. You must make a good confession as soon as possible. 
The boy pursed his lips. You refuse? Don Bosco went on. The time will come when you'll ask for me and won't find me. Think it over seriously. At the good night talk on Monday, December 1st, Don Bosco urged the boys to make well the exercise for a happy death, because one of them would die before he could make another. He is right here among you, Don Bosco said, but I can never get to him because he always steers clear of me. I have tried to speak to him of his soul, but to no avail, and yet one day he will call for me, and I won't be around. In his last moments, he'll cry out for Don Bosco, but Don Bosco won't be found. He will yearn for him, but in vain, because Don Bosco will be away, and he will die without ever seeing him again. I would very much like to talk to him, to help him straighten out within the short time left to him, but he keeps dodging me. Still, I'll secretly put a guardian angel at his side to lead him to me. He doesn't know and doesn't want to know that he is doomed to die shortly. He doesn't want to die, but it has been irrevocably so decreed. We shall prepare him. We shall remind him. The feasts of the Immaculate Conception and Christmas are propitious occasions. Let's hope that one of them may draw him to a good confession. But let him bear in mind that he will not be here for the next exercise for a happy death. The next day, the whole oratory was astir with this stunning prediction. Meanwhile, Don Bosco told the infirmarian, a student himself, to look after him prudently and try to persuade him to receive the sacraments, especially to go to confession as soon as possible, since time was running out. Kufia, the infirmarian, understood and strove to be a guardian angel, but his efforts failed. Notwithstanding Don Bosco's frightening prediction, Albert wasn't troubled. His thinking went somewhat like this. Don Bosco has the reputation of being a prophet. He said that someone would lead the doomed boy to him and that he would warn him. But I won't let myself be caught, he thought. Since he won't be able to warn me, I can't be the one he's talking about. His unfortunate ruse succeeded all too well. Through that entire month, not once could Don Bosco even get a glimpse of him. The feasts of the Immaculate Conception and Christmas came and went, and Albert never even thought of mending his ways or going to confession. According to the oratory's time-honored custom, the exercise for a happy death was scheduled for New Year's Day. Don Bosco was on the alert for a chance to be with Albert, at least in his last moments. Unfortunately, at this very time, Duchess Montmorency invited him to her property and residence to preach the 40 hours devotion after Christmas. When Don Bosco resisted, she insisted with vehemence. She was a benefactress of the oratory, after all. I shall come, Don Bosco resignedly replied. When the time came, Don Bosco sent for Oriella and Father Alessonati. I'll be away for three days, he told them. Is it all right? Is anybody sick? Have no worry, everything's fine. The infirmary is empty. And so, Don Bosco left. Albert was in excellent health and in high spirits. In the dormitory, he was handed a letter from a certain Moisio, a friend of his who had left the oratory the year before to enter the diocesan seminary. Are you alive or dead? His friend asked. If you're alive, why don't you write? I'm going to write to him that I'm dead, Albert remarked after reading the letter to his companions. 
So he did, to the great amusement of all, and mailed the letter. The rest of the day went by uneventfully. Like everybody else, Albert took part in the weekly walk. Later he went to supper, and then to choir practice. When the bell rang for night prayers, he too went along. But toward the end of the prayers, he suddenly felt weak and close to fainting. Felix, a schoolmate, propped him up, and with another boy, helped him to the infirmary. No sooner was he in bed than excruciating stomach pains set in, and his throat began to swell. The doctor was sent for and did all that he could, but he soon realized that the case was very serious and that the patient should receive the last sacraments without delay. The infirmarian broke the news to Albert. Sensing his critical condition, the poor boy, grieved by his bad conduct, asked to make his confession. "'Shall I call Father Alisonati?' the infirmarian suggested. "'No,' Albert replied. "'I want Don Bosco.' He was greatly dismayed when he was told that Don Bosco was out. Back into his mind flashed Don Bosco's words a month before. "'I'm lost,' he cried. "'I'll die without ever seeing Don Bosco again. I always kept away from him because I didn't want to talk to him, and now God is punishing me.' He then asked for another priest. Felix ran to fetch Father Rua, who came at once. Albert made his confession with true sorrow. Father Alessonati, too, informed of the boy's critical condition, hastened to his bedside. Finally at peace with God, Albert turned to his two superiors. Tell Don Bosco I'm sorry. Tell him that though I don't deserve his pardon, I hope he will forgive me, just as I hope God has forgiven me. I'm truly sorry. I ask pardon of everybody. Toward 11.30, he edifyingly received Holy Viaticum, the anointing of the sick, and the papal blessing. Meanwhile, Felix, who had done his utmost to be helpful, stood in the corridor, looking in once in a while. Albert spotted him. Come in, Felix, he called. Felix stepped to the foot of his bed. It's your fault if I die without seeing Don Bosco, Albert went on reproachfully. But I forgive you, because I too need God's pardon. You know who's responsible for my becoming bad. But no more of that. You'll see my father and mother. Tell them that I repented before dying, and that I'll be waiting for them in heaven. But you, it's because of you that Don Bosco isn't here now to comfort me. Deathly pale, Felix couldn't utter a word. Albert died around three o'clock on the morning of January 1st, 1863. That same day, his friend, Moisio, back in Casale, received Albert's letter with the message, I am dead. Thank you for watching, and I do hope you all have a very blessed and joyful Advent this year. I recommend the St. Andrew's Novena all the way up until Christmas. Oh, and if you'd like to see my magnum opus about St. John Bosco, which is a summary of his whole life, just click on the link above me here. God bless you, and Our Lady keep you. This mystical dream or vision of St. John Bosco occurred when he was a young priest, before prophetic dreams were a regularity in his life, for he received over 150 before he died. This vision was before the oratory was well established in Turin. In fact, it was a time of great insecurity, because he wasn't sure if keeping up the apostolate with these boys was even feasible. 
He was very poor and lacked funds and space for the 200-some-odd boys he was helping at the time. It all seemed impossible, till this vision put new wind in his sails and assured him of his providential mission. The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. Subscribe for new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Don Bosco wrote in his memoirs, On the second Sunday of that year, 1844, I was to tell my boys that the oratory was being transferred to the Valdoco area. I was, however, very worried because I was uncertain about the exact location, the means, and the people to help me. On Saturday night, I went to bed feeling uneasy, but that night I had a new dream which seemed to be a sequel to the one I had at Becky when about nine years old. I think it best to put it down literally. I dreamed that I was in the midst of a multitude of wolves, goats, kids, lambs, sheep, dogs, birds, and rams. The whole menagerie raised an uproar, a racket that would have frightened even the bravest man. I wanted to run away when a lady dressed as a shepherdess beckoned me to follow her and accompany the strange flock she was leading. We wandered aimlessly, making three stops along the way, at each of which many of those animals changed into lambs, so that the number of lambs continually increased. After a long trek, I found I was in a meadow where those animals were grazing and frolicking, making no attempt to bite each other. I was exhausted and wanted to sit by the roadside, but the shepherdess invited me to keep walking. A short distance away, I came upon a large playground surrounded by porticos with a church at one end. Here I noticed that four-fifths of those animals had become lambs. Their number was now very large. At that moment, many young shepherds came to watch over them, but they remained only a short time and walked off. Then a marvelous thing happened. Many lambs turned into shepherds, and they, in increasing numbers, took care of the flock. When the shepherds became too many, they parted and went elsewhere to herd other strange animals into pens. I wanted to leave because I thought it was time for me to say mass, but the shepherdess asked me to look to the south. On doing so, I saw a field in which potatoes, cabbage, beets, lettuce, and many other vegetables had been planted. Look again, she said. I did so and beheld a monumental church. In the choir loft, I saw choristers and musicians who seemed to be inviting me to sing mass. On a white streamer inside the church, there was emblazoned in large letters, Eek Domus Mea, Ende Gloria Mea. Here is my house, and hence my glory will come forth. Still dreaming, I asked the shepherdess where I was, and the meaning of all this walking, the stops, the house, the church, and then another church. You will understand everything, she said, when, with your bodily eyes, you will behold all that you now see in your mind. I thought I was awake, and so I said, I see clearly, and with my bodily eyes. I know where I'm going and what I'm doing. Just then, the bell of St. Francis of Assisi Church rang the Ave Maria, and I awoke. The dream lasted nearly the whole night, and there were many other details. At the time, I understood little of it, because, distrusting myself, I put little faith in it. As things gradually began to take shape, I began to understand, 
In fact, later on, this dream, together with another, formed the basis of my planning while at the refugio. In the early afternoon of the third Sunday of October, the Feast of the Purity of Mary, a swarm of boys of various ages and conditions came running down to Valdoco in search of Don Bosco and the new oratory. Where's Don Bosco? Where's the oratory? Don Bosco? It was an invasion. Hearing all this shouting and commotion, the neighborhood people came out of their homes somewhat alarmed, fearing that the boys had come with some evil intent. None of them had as yet heard of Don Bosco or his festive oratory, so they shouted right back, Who cares about Don Bosco? What oratory? Go away, you rascals! Thinking that the people were making fun of them, the boys shouted even louder in their quest, and the neighborhood people took it in bad part and threatened to beat them. Things were beginning to take a bad turn when Don Bosco, aroused by the clamor, realized that it was his young friends looking for him and the new oratory. He could hear them repeating, He told us to come here. Who knows where he lives? Then a boy pointed to a doorway and in a loud voice shouted, Don Bosco lives there. Follow me. At that moment, Don Bosco came out of the house. His appearance was greeted with a roar. Oh, Don Bosco, where is the oratory? We're all here. Everybody ran to him and all arguments ceased. As the clamor died down, the people's anger changed to amazement. Staring, they asked themselves who this priest could be, who these boys were, and so on. When the boys inquired about the oratory's whereabouts, Don Bosco told them that the real oratory was not yet ready, that meanwhile they were to come to his room, which was large enough to accommodate them. The boys then swarmed up the stairs, each one trying to be the first to enter Don Bosco's room. They sat on the bed, on the floor, on the desk, and even the windowsill. Don Bosco looked on amused as they turned his entire room topsy-turvy, and he only asked them to be careful not to break or damage anything. But charity is patient, as it says in Corinthians. They were all tightly jammed in Don Bosco's quarters and adjacent rooms, and there were only two confessors for about 200 boys, packed as tight as sardines in a can. We can't go on like this, said Father Burrell on that occasion. We must find a more suitable place. Which, as you would know if you've been following this YouTube channel, Divine Providence did supply him with not just a massive oratory, but an incredible church dedicated to Our Lady Help of Christians. But it would take much effort on his part and many years striving for sustainability. Nothing was ever settled, and he had to beg for alms constantly. If you'd like to hear about the miracles that occurred for those who contributed to his work, just click on the link above me here. God bless you, and Our Lady keep you. Don Bosco told one of his Salesian clerics, I was sorely tempted today to slap you publicly. Do you know why? We'll find out why in this episode about the importance of the virtue of purity. The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. Subscribe for new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Don Bosco used to give conferences to the teachers, craftmasters, and assistants, stressing the importance of the spiritual welfare of their charges. He would say, boys come to the oratory. Their parents and benefactors entrust them to us for either an academic technical or vocational education, 
but our Lord sends them to us that we may look after their souls and that they may find here the path of their eternal salvation. Our uppermost aim, then, is to make them good and to save their souls for eternity. We must, therefore, regard everything else as just a means. The school year is well on its way, and that's why I'm very anxious to resume, as in the past, our get-togethers at least once a week after night prayers, because this seems to be the most opportune time. Now, I'm not going to give you a sermon. I only want to tell you that what I most earnestly wish and insist upon is that you practice what St. Paul so often insisted upon and what God himself recommended to Moses as the latter was about to descend from the holy mountain. Be exemplars, genuine exemplars to all your students. You must be the path which all the oratory boys may safely follow. You must so behave as to edify all who see you. You must try to help others not only by advice, but mostly by example. How can you exhort others to receive the sacraments if you do not set the example yourselves? How you would spur them on if you would edify them with fervent reception of the sacraments and modest, devout deportment in church? On the contrary, what harm, what scandal would result if the boys should unfortunately hear a cleric speak less becomingly, or let a word slip that is even slightly offensive to the beautiful virtue of purity. St. John Chrysostom compares God's ministers to fruit trees set in a fine-fenced orchard. How delightful to behold their leafy, fruit-laden branches. On the other hand, what a disappointment they would be if, being fruit trees, they were barren. They would arouse anger and malediction because they encumber the soil. We are like fruit trees. People come to us in search of good fruit. What a shock if they find none. St. Ambrose says that we should be like so many moons. Just as the moon doesn't shine of its own light, but receives it from the sun, and being lighted itself, reflects it to the earth, so we too, since we have nothing of our own, must take from God the Most High, Son of Justice, that divine word which enlightens men's minds. After using it for our own sanctification, we must pass it on to enlighten those who wait for us to light them the way to heaven. St. Augustine used to say, Do you want to know the meaning of the toga which young Romans were dressed in at the age of seventeen? It meant more than the age. It was a symbol of the knowledge, virtue, and other qualities expected of one who wears that garment. So with us. Under our clerical habit, we must wear the moral qualities demanded by so holy a garment. When Joshua had to cross the Jordan, God told him, Let the priests lead the way with the ark. The waters of the Jordan will be divided, and the people will cross over dry-shod. And so it happened. The waters parted, those above rose as a wall, those below flowed away and left a dry bed. Thus the Israelites were able to cross into the promised land. We must do the same. With the ark of our faith, with our holy religion, with our good advice and example, we must safely lead men from this world into a happy eternity. Let us therefore do all we can to save souls. You are surrounded by many boys who constantly watch you. 
do your utmost to set them on the right path by good example, advice, and exhortation. Do this, and I shall be quite satisfied, even though your number is not greater than last year. I'm sure the Lord will bless us all and will continue, as in the past, to help us with his mighty hand to make all our labors bear fruit. Amen. In his conferences, Don Bosco never tired of urging his young clerics to be painstaking in their supervision of the boys, for it would have been naive to assume that the oratory could be immune from human weakness. He himself set the example by his steady, prudent supervision to prevent evil or uproot it, if it had found its way into the house. During the oratory's first twenty years, he showed up everywhere, and occasionally when least expected, in the dormitories, the workshops, the classrooms, the dining rooms, and the most unlikely places. He took notice of the smallest things. He wanted to know and see all. For example, two boys might be loitering in the dining room, leafing through the book which was being read aloud during meals. They were considered as good, yet Don Bosco would kindly call them out. Others might be grouped apart, discussing some project, planning a little party, or gambling a few coins. Don Bosco would suddenly show up and send them to play with the others. But before we get to the meat of the story, I'd just like to say that if you'd like to enroll in our Saturday Mass intentions for the promoters of St. John Bosco, just click on the link in the description below. Or you can wait till the end of the video and click on the logo that should appear on the screen. A boy might be walking hand in hand with a pal or with an arm around his shoulder. Don Bosco would come along and playfully remove the boy's hand or arm. Have you forgotten the rule not to lay hands on one another? He would ask. Hands play is thieves play. Well-mannered people don't do that. One day in the playground, he saw a boy arm in arm with a cleric, and the latter offered no objection. He didn't intervene, but later he remarked to the cleric, I was sorely tempted today to slap you publicly. Do you know why? Yes, father. Enough. Just be careful. Don Bosco was highly sensitive in this matter. On many occasions, his vigilance was baffling. He seemed to have a mysterious sixth sense, which we shall further illustrate on this channel. But often, while at work, prayer, meals, or recreation with his boys, he would suddenly call one of his co-workers and whisper, Go to such and such a dormitory. There are three boys locked in there, and he would name them, reading an objectionable newspaper. Tell them to get out at once. Another time, he would say to a trustworthy boy, Go and tell the assistant that in such a place behind the porticos, boys are hiding. Tell him to chase them out. Or he would say to a cleric, Go to the top of the stairs and tell so-and-so that Don Bosco knows what's going on. Those occurrences were quite frequent. In all cases, facts proved that Don Bosco was right in every detail of place, persons, and circumstances. But while playing guardian angel, he also imitated the angel's discretion and patience. The plausible motives of his abrupt appearances, his goodness and simplicity, his constant show of affection and esteem for all without exception, and his forgive and forget policy were such that the boys felt no mistrust in his regard. In fact, no sooner did they spot him than they all flocked to him. Thank you all so much for watching. 
And don't forget, if you'd like to enroll in our Saturday Mass intentions for the promoters of St. John Bosco, just click on the link above me here. God bless you, and Our Lady keep you. I'd like to take you back to the time when St. John Bosco was a young teenager trying to find his way in life. We tend to focus on the time when saints were older and sure of their mission, but in doing so, we cut out many important lessons that we could teach to the insecure youth of today. In this episode, we'll learn that even at a young age, he was a role model of perseverance to the point of raising money for his education through winning prizes and even taking up blacksmithing. The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. Subscribe for new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. In those days, a grave demeanor was considered to be a requisite for ecclesiastics. Such reserve produced fear and not love in our young John Bosco. He felt hurt and frequently said to himself and to others, if I were a priest, I would act differently. I would look for boys and gather them around me. I would want them to know that I care for them and desire their friendship. I would speak kindly to them, give them good advice, and dedicate myself entirely to their spiritual welfare. How I would love to have a chance to talk with my pastor, just as I did with Father Coloso, who had just recently died. Why shouldn't it be so? He often gave vent to these feelings with his mother. Margaret knew her son's heart well and appreciated such sentiments. What can you do, she would say. They're learned men. Their mind is full of important matters, and it's hard for them to come down to the level of a boy like you. But is it so hard for them to stop a couple of minutes and just say a few words to me? What would you want them to tell you? Something good for my soul. But can't you see that they have so much to do hearing confessions, preaching, and just taking care of the parish? But aren't we too their little parishioners? Yes, that's true, but they haven't any time to waste. Did Jesus waste time when he talked with little children? When he scolded the apostles for wanting to keep them away from him, didn't he tell them to let them come to him because theirs was the kingdom of heaven? Yes, I agree with you, you're right. But what can you do about it? Well, you'll see. If I ever become a priest, I'll give my whole life to youngsters. They'll never see me looking stern and forbidding. I'll always be the first to speak to them. St. Joseph Cafasso, meanwhile, had been giving some thought to smoothing John's path to the priesthood. As soon as John had a chance, he went to Turin and called on Father Cafasso at the Convito Ecclesiastico of St. Francis of Assisi, which was a sort of finishing school for priests that, in the future, Don Bosco would be going to. He told him that he wanted to be a Franciscan and asked his advice. Father Cafasso dissuaded him from joining the Franciscans and said, go ahead with your studies enter the seminary, and go along with whatever divine providence may ordain for you. At one glance, Father Cafasso had fully grasped John Bosco's mission. Indeed, it seemed that God manifested his will by another dream that same year. Don Bosco confided it to Father Julius Barbaris in 1870. In Don Bosco's memoirs, we find this entry. The dream I had had in Morialdo was repeated when I was 19 and other times as well. He seemed to see a man of lofty majesty, clad in white and resplendent with the most radiant light. He was leading an immense throng of boys. Turning to John, the man had said, 
Come here, put yourself at the head of these children and lead them. But I don't know how to lead or teach so many boys, replied John. There are thousands of them. But that august personage insisted preemptorily until John placed himself at the head of that multitude of boys and began to lead them in obedience to the command. These were the reasons that prompted John to give up the idea of entering the Franciscan order without, however, being able to stifle an inexplicable yearning in his heart for the religious life. In the meantime, he continued the studies he had not interrupted even during this period. Now, by nature, John was enterprising, active, energetic, ingenious in striving after his goals, perseverant and prudent in raising funds for his education. This was his training from earliest childhood. At Becky, in fact, in countless ingenious ways, John had raised the money he needed by attracting people to his performances. Now, as a student, prior to his entrance into the seminary, he had to earn his keep. A delightful anecdote of this period, related by eyewitnesses, shows how smart he was in his efforts to earn money for his studies. One day, a fiesta was being held in the village of Montefia. A very high and well-greased pole had been raised in the middle of the square, topped by a hoop laden with prizes. A large crowd watched as the youths, scanning its height, tried to climb it to reach them. Some managed to shimmy up a third of the way, others even half, but they soon slid right down again. The bystanders shouted their encouragement to the more daring climbers, who seemed the likely winners. But there were only jeers and catcalls for those who failed. A din filled the square. John had noticed how the contestants, panting without pausing for a breath, had attempted to rush up, only to slide down soon after, pulled down by their own weight, unable to go any higher. He chose a different approach. Unhesitatingly, he stepped forward from the crowd into the open area around the pole. Slowly and with easy calm, he began his climb. Now and then, he would clamp his legs around the pole and rest on his heels. At first, the crowd couldn't understand what he was up to and laughed uproariously, expecting to see him slide to the bottom at any moment like the others. But as he climbed nearer and nearer the top, a hushed silence settled on the crowd. When he reached it, the tapered pole began to sway perilously. A frenzied applause now hailed the young conqueror. Stretching out his hand, John grasped the first bag that contained 20 lire, then a sausage and a handkerchief, and stuffed them inside his shirt. Leaving some smaller prizes behind that the game might continue, he rapidly slid down the pole, melted into the applauding crowd, and disappeared. This wasn't the only time that John succeeded in winning such prizes. Needy student that he was, they were to stand him in good stead. Among other skills, John also learned the blacksmith's trade. He worked at it when he saw that it was no longer worthwhile to attend his classes. Under the guidance of Avasio Savio, the local blacksmith and an excellent Christian, John learned to work at the forge and handle the sledgehammer and file. He was a keen observer and took notice of the various techniques used in this shop. He was also to acquire other skills years later in other shops. To this practical experience, he kept adding a sound theoretical knowledge of every new trade by intelligent and frequent questions. Many will want to know more about this Avasio Savio, 
who had such a great influence upon John's destiny. Savio was a good blacksmith, a most honest man, and an excellent Catholic. He remained always a very good friend of Don Bosco. One day in 1862, Savio met Don Bosco in Turin. In the course of the conversation, Savio talked about Father Cafasso and other persons boundless in their charity, and then of some individuals who, in his opinion, ought to have made better use of their wealth. Don Bosco asked, would you make better use of it? I don't know, Savio replied. This is the reason why I don't want to be rich. Do you know what my biggest worry is? Surely it must be to live and die in the grace of God. No, I'm not worried about death. I take care, though, to be prepared for it when it comes. My biggest worry is this. I'm a blacksmith, and I'm very much troubled when after finishing a job, I have to decide on the price I must charge. As I enter the charge in my book, I ask myself, will the good Lord write down the same amount? If I charge more, won't that be a charge against me? To play it safe, I always charge 20% less than the ordinary rate. His friendship with Don Bosco prompted Savio to help him zealously as much as he could. He also visited him often at the oratory. Just to give one example, when the magazine La Chode Catalice against Waldensian heresies first came out, they would hardly have been sold in Castelnuovo if their circulation had been handled only through regular channels. This simple, hard-working Savio, despite his limited means and poor education, not only subscribed to them, but took it upon himself to make them known in other villages, heedless of distance, inconvenience, and oftentimes expense on his part. It is indeed true that God, in order to promote his glory, always chooses as his best instruments the poor in spirit, the simple and honest in heart. If you'd like to hear about how Don Bosco had the strength of Samson, just click on the link above me here. God bless you and Our Lady keep you. A mysterious visitor appeared to Don Bosco late at night and showed him the ghastly future of some of his oratory boys as well as the state of their souls. The vision will prove to you three things. The care that Don Bosco had for the souls entrusted to him, his ability to read the hearts of men through God's grace, and the prophetic nature of his sanctity. The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. Subscribe for new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. At the Goodnight Talk on November 11, 1873, Don Bosco narrated a dream he had received from God on November 8th and 10th. He said, I dreamed that I was visiting the dormitories late at night. You were all sitting up in bed. Suddenly a stranger appeared and, taking the lamp from me, said, Come and let me show you something. I followed him as he went from bed to bed and kept raising the lamp so that I could see each boy's face. I looked carefully and saw each boy's sins written on his forehead. The stranger advised me to take notes, but thinking I'd remember, I moved along a bit further, ignoring his advice. Soon, though, realizing that I had been overconfident, I retraced my steps and jotted everything in my notebook. While going down the long aisle, my guide turned to a corner where, to my great joy, 
we saw a large number of boys whose faces and foreheads were as wide and clean as snow. A little further, however, the stranger marked out one boy whose face was marred with black spots. As we went on, I saw many others in the same condition. I noted everything, saying to myself, this way I can warn them. At last, as we reached the end of the dormitory, I heard a loud noise coming from a corner, followed by an awesome singing of the miserere. Who died? I asked my guide, the one with the black spots. Impossible. Just last night he was alive. Taking a calendar, he pointed to December 5th, 1873. This boy shall die before New Year's Day, he said. He then turned his back to me. I turned about too and awoke in bed. Now this was all just a dream, but similar dreams have already come true on other occasions. Dream or no dream, let us heed our Lord's warnings to be ever ready. When he was through speaking, pupils, clerics, and priests crowded about him, anxious to know what he had seen on their foreheads. A large number, some of them clerics, didn't go to bed until they had talked privately with him. Father Berto made the following entry in his notes. As I was going with him to his room, he told me that the lamp used during his visit to the dormitories was the one he had in his room. Later, as we were pacing up and down, he added, How little it takes to shake up the boys. No sermon could do as much. Yes, I must keep telling them these things. They will surely do a lot of good, I remarked. You'll have quite a crowd for confessions tomorrow. I also heard one boy say, I don't want to ask him now what he saw on my forehead because I wouldn't have the courage to go to confession tomorrow. The next morning, however, he did go to confession. Commenting on the boys with spotted faces, he remarked, One already asked me to tell him what I saw. I mentioned two or three things, and he stopped me, saying, Enough, you know too much. The next morning, I saw that he, too, was going to confession. On December 4th, the boy with the spotted face was still playing with his friends, but at five that afternoon, he fell sick with the flu and was immediately taken to the infirmary. During the night, he made his confession and received the last sacraments. By morning, the end seemed near. His parents came and took him to St. John's Hospital, where, at eleven that evening, December 5th, he passed into eternity. Don Bosco was then in Lonzo. When he returned to the oratory on the following day, Saturday, December 6th, the dead boy's aunt tearfully gave him the sad news. It spread instantly, causing general consternation. Unbelievable, cried his schoolmates. Just two days ago, he was with us on our weekly walk. At the good night talk, Don Bosco comforted them and told them that their schoolmate had made a general confession even before falling ill. Father Berto, who had taken the names of all who questioned Don Bosco immediately after he had told his dream, including the one who had shied from asking him but had gone to confession the following morning and the one who was to die, made the following statement during the informative process. On the evening of December 7, 1873, I accompanied Don Bosco to his room and then asked him to tell me confidentially how he was able to read the boys' consciences especially their sins. Well, he replied with his usual kindliness, nearly every night I dream that boys come to me for their general confession and tell me all their sins. 
The next morning, when they really do come for confession, all I need do is to tell them their sins. Write down these things, I said. They're all very helpful. By no means, he replied. Such things are to be used only by one actively engaged in the priestly ministry. One might add, and only when this priest is one favored by God with such charisms. He narrated a similar dream, a visit to dormitories, the singing of the Miserere, and an imminent death, also to the boys at Lanzo on a visit to them that month. Charles Baratta, who had arrived in Lanzo only a few days before, recalled its every detail many years later to the director, Father John Baptist Lemoyne, who had taken no notes of it until then. On this occasion, he jotted down the dream as follows. It seemed to Don Bosco that a mysterious youth took him into one of the dormitories while all the boys were asleep, and, holding a candle up to the boys' faces, made them known to Don Bosco. The first ones had clear foreheads, whereas others' foreheads were marked by either one or two black lines, symbolizing venial sins. Other boys' faces were either shrouded in fog or shadows, or completely blackened by mortal sins. Don Bosco took pencil and paper and jotted down their names and appearance. Hardly had he reached the end of the dormitory when, from an opposite corner where all the boys were unmarred in their looks, he suddenly heard the chant of the Miserere. Why the Miserere? he asked his mysterious guide. So and so died on such and such a day, was the reply. But how can that be? He was alive only a little while ago. In God's sight, the future is like the present. Don Bosco concluded that this death would happen within a month, but though he didn't disclose the name, he exhorted all to be ready. However, the boys kept saying that Don Bosco had revealed the boy's name to the director. Fifteen days later, Cavazzoli fell ill and died. We heard the same story from Father John Grissino, a pupil at Lonzo since 1872. He gave us a thorough account, asserting that Don Bosco had confided to the director the name of the youth who was to die. This 18-year-old young man died 15 days later. Parish records state that he received the sacrament of penance, holy viaticum, and the papal blessing, but was unwilling to die. The director showed him that he was fortunate to be able to die well prepared. Would such be the case later? Well, the youth replied, in that case, I want to die. But how does one go about dying? Short prayers for a happy death were suggested to him, and he repeated them devoutly. Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, I give you my heart and my soul. Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, assist me in my last agony. The death rattle was audible. Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, may I breathe forth my soul in peace with you. He died serenely on December 21st at 10.30. Father Gressino also recalled Don Bosco saying that he had had that dream the night before. Nor should this be surprising, since he himself used to say that nearly every night he dreamed of his boys making their confession to him. His boundless fatherly love well deserved that our Lord should reveal to him imminent deaths so that he might prepare those concerned for that last great step. Thank you all so much for watching, and if you'd like to hear about more prophecies that St. John Bosco made, just click on the playlist above me here. God bless you. And Our Lady keep you. Wait a second.
If it's a dream, how did he have his notes when he woke up? I was so touched by this incident in St. John Bosco's life that I just had to tell you about it. The poor woman in this episode brings to mind the lesson of the widow's might, and St. John Bosco reminds me of our Lord Jesus Christ himself, the worker of miracles. The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. Subscribe for new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. One day, returning to the oratory from town, Don Bosco noticed a woman by the entrance. She was holding a one-year-old baby boy in her arms, pale, emaciated, covered with scabs, and looking more like a corpse than a child. Is this your son? He asked the woman. Yes, father. How long has he been sick? From birth. Have you taken him to a doctor? Yes, father, but he told me nothing can be done. Would you like him to be well? Oh, how I would, my poor baby. She kissed him, but the child made no response. Have you prayed to Our Lady? Yes, but nothing seems to happen. Do you go to the sacraments? Sometimes. Do you believe that the Madonna can even cure your son? Yes, but I don't deserve such a favor. If she were to cure him, what would you do for her? I would give her whatever is dearest to me. Would you like me to give him the blessing of Mary, help of Christians? Oh yes, please. Well, as soon as you can, go to confession and communion, and for nine days say three times an Our Father, a Hail Mary, and a Glory Be, in honor of Mary, help of Christians. Ask your husband to join you in prayer, and Our Lady will soon make your child well. Then he blessed the little one. Fifteen days later, on a Sunday, the sacristy of the Church of Mary, Help of Christians was crowded with people seeking to speak to Don Bosco after he had finished hearing confessions. Among them was a woman carrying a baby boy, kicking, eyes sparkling, and very much alive. Elbowing her way through the crowd, she got to Don Bosco. Look at my boy, she exclaimed, radiant with joy. What can I do for you, my good woman? Don Bosco asked. Don't you see how well he is? She continued. Well, may the Lord keep him so, but can I do anything for you? He had completely forgotten the child he had blessed just two weeks before when it seemed to be dying. The woman refreshed his memory and told him that by the third or fourth day of the novena, the child had suddenly recovered. Now, she continued, I came to meet my obligation. From a box, she took a gold necklace, a pair of earrings, and a ring, and she handed them to Don Bosco. Is this your offering? He asked. Yes, Father, I promised Our Lady that I would give her what I cherish most. Please accept them. Have you no other possessions? No, nothing, Father, except what my husband earns working at the foundry. Does he know that you're donating this jewelry to Our Lady? Yes, he knows, and has gladly agreed. Have you any savings for emergencies? What can we save on a three litre a day salary? What will you do in an emergency or sickness? I'm not worried. God will provide. But you could count on this jewelry in an emergency. You could sell it or pawn it. The Lord knows that we're poor, but I must do what I have promised. Well, Don Bosco said, deeply moved, let's do this. Our Lady doesn't ask such a great sacrifice from you, but since it's only proper that you give some tangible proof of your gratitude, I will accept this ring. Keep the necklace and earrings. 
No, no, cried the woman. I promised all, and I want to give all to her. No, do as I tell you. That's enough. But will Our Lady be pleased? I don't want to break my promise. I'm afraid she may punish me. I assure you, Our Lady is quite pleased with you. But how do you know? Take my word for it. In turn, I will use the value of the necklace and earrings in Mary's honor and in your name. May I honestly do this? Yes, you may, and you will. The good woman paused, undecided, but then said, So be it. Do what you think is best, but I'm still willing to give you all my jewelry. Don Bosco was firm in his refusal, and the woman returned home quite happy, an admirable model of gratitude and faith. It brings to mind these passages of St. Mark's Gospel. And there came a certain poor widow, and she cast in two mites, which make a farthing. And calling his disciples together, he saith to them, Amen, I say to you, this poor widow hath cast in more than all they who have cast in to the treasury. Father Lemoyne recorded another moving incident, as yet unpublished. But before we get to that story, I'd just like to say that if you'd like to enroll in our Saturday Mass intentions for the promoters of St. John Bosco, just click on the link in the description below. Or you can wait till the end of the video and click on the logo that should appear on the screen. One morning, a poor man, after an overnight walk of some 35 miles from Alba, went to confession and communion in the Church of Mary Help of Christians and then called on Don Bosco to fulfill a vow. Sometime before, he had been critically ill and given up as hopeless by his doctor. Aware of his desperate condition, he had promised to give all he had to Our Lady and had instantly recovered. Don Bosco listened and wondered what an entire life savings would look like from one so shabbily dressed. The man took a little packet from his pocket, unwrapped it, and formally handed one lira to Don Bosco. It's all I have, he said. This is it? Yes. Do you have a little vineyard at home or something? No, nothing at all. Well, what kind of work do you do? Manual labor. I live from hand to mouth. How will you get back home? The same way I came, on foot. You must be exhausted. A little, it's a long way. Have you eaten this morning? No, because I wanted to go to communion. I ate some bread before midnight. Then please be my guest and stay overnight. You can return home tomorrow if you wish. No, I can't accept. Why not? It wouldn't do to bring one lira and make you spend three or four. That's no way to fulfill a vow. Listen, give your offering to Our Lady and let me offer you hospitality. No, I can't accept because I know that Our Lady and you have but one in the same purse. I can promise you that the Madonna will not take it amiss if you agree to be my guest. I'm not convinced, and I don't wish to bother you in any way. How will you manage to get home? I'll start walking. When I get hungry, I'll beg for food. When I'm tired, I'll rest by the wayside. At night, some farmer will let me sleep in his hayloft. Just now I must fulfill my vow to the letter. Goodbye now, and pray for me. And with those words, he left abruptly. Thank you all so much for watching. And don't forget, if you'd like to enroll in our Saturday Mass intentions for the promoters of St. John Bosco, just click on the link above me here. God bless you, and Our Lady keep you.
I've performed over a hundred episodes on my YouTube channel telling fascinating stories about just one saint in particular. But today, I'm going to attempt to summarize his incredible, action-packed life into just one video. It'll never do him justice, but I can certainly try. The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. Subscribe for new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Nestled in the foothills of the Italian Alps, the village of Becchi became home to John Melchior Bosco on August 16, 1815. This little baby would grow to be one of the leading lights during the troubling times of the 19th century. His profound influence can be seen even in our own day. When John Bosco was but two years old, his father, Francesco Bosco, passed away. His widowed mother, known by all as Mama Margarita, worked tirelessly for the survival of her family. The time after the Napoleonic Wars was marked by famines and hardship. Young John Bosco and his two older brothers worked long hours each day in the fields. Mama Margarita made sure every activity began and ended with prayer. The mother's influence assured each of her children thanked God for providing the little they possessed. As a child, John Bosco enjoyed visiting the fairs and festivals of nearby villages. The magic shows and acrobatics greatly impressed him. He watched carefully and learned all he could from these traveling entertainers. By the time he was nine years old, young John Bosco could be seen putting on his own shows. Tightrope walking, juggling, sleight of hand, and puppetry attracted many of his contemporaries, sometimes a hundred boys at a time watching. The price of admission to these shows? Let us say Our Lady's Rosary, said the young showman. His audience knelt and gladly obeyed. Showing zeal for his friends, he led prayers before and after each performance and insisted each boy frequent the sacraments. Now it was at this time that John Bosco had the first of his prophetic dreams, which he later wrote down. I found myself in a large courtyard where there were many boys. Seeing that some were blaspheming, I rushed into their midst, raising my voice and using my fists to quiet them. At that point, a man appeared who said, not with blows, but with kindness will you win these boys, set to work to instruct them on the wickedness of sin and the excellence of virtue. Thinking he was asking the impossible, as I was only nine at the time, I asked him who he was. He replied, I am the son of her whom your mother taught you to salute three times a day. Ask her my name. Then there appeared a radiant and majestic woman, and the man brought me to her. When she took my hand, I then saw the boys disappear, and in their place all types of beasts, tigers, lions, bears, and wolves. She said, Be humble, determined, and strong. You must do for my sons what you will now see happen to these animals. I then looked again, and instead of fierce animals, I now saw gentle lambs. I understood nothing of it, and asked the lady to explain. She placed her hand on my head and said, In good time, my son, you will understand everything. This dream marked John Bosco for the rest of his life. He told all of the details at the breakfast table the next morning. Members of the family each offered their own explanations, but Mama Margarita listened quietly. After pondering a few moments, her only words were, Who knows? 
This may mean that someday my Johnny will become a priest of God. The dreams of John Bosco came and went, but his gifts and talents soon manifested themselves to one and all. When walking home after a mission in a nearby town, he saw a priest at a distance. Catching up to him, the two conversed at length. John Bosco impressed the priest with his incredible memory when he recited the entire sermon given that evening word for word. The next week, the priest began giving him private instruction. Due to family hardship, John went to live and work on the farm of Senor Molia. A priest who was related to this family came to stay one summer and was so impressed with the bright boy, he began giving John daily lessons. The same continued for two years. And every Sunday, John walked to the nearby parish church to instruct the local boys and continue his one-man shows. Concerned with his lack of schooling, a generous uncle provided for John Bosco to begin attending the local high school in the fall of 1830. At the high school of Castelnuovo, this 15-year-old lad excelled, despite his lack of formal schooling. This star pupil finished the courses of three academic years by the spring of 1831. The local tailor at Castelnuovo took John into his home, where the young man learned this trade that would serve him well into the future. In the fall of 1831, John began seminary studies at Chieti. His living conditions with the owners of a local restaurant taught him to be on his guard against bad company. John's deeds, by word and example, attracted the good and made enemies of the bad, a pattern that would repeat itself throughout his adult life. The remainder of John Bosco's school days passed quickly, and after a brief six years, he completed all of the seminary courses. Filled with humility as the day of his ordination approached, he wrote down the following, No priest goes either to heaven or to hell alone. Faithful or unfaithful, he carries many with him. When it is a question of the salvation of souls, I will always be prepared to humble myself, to suffer, and to act. On June 5, 1841, the Archbishop of Turin ordained John Bosco at the age of 26 to the sacred priesthood. At his first mass, he later recounted asking especially for the gift of efficacy in word in order to do good to souls. The people afterward addressed him by his Italian title for the first time, and the name of Don Bosco would one day be known the world over. Given his choice of assignments, Don Bosco opted to remain at Turin for further studies. The Industrial Revolution marked the city during this period. Thousands were moving in from the countryside looking for work in the factories. Boys as young as 10 years old could be found working long shifts and living on the streets. On the Feast of the Immaculate Conception, Don Bosco saw his sacristan throw a young boy out of the sacristy. Approaching the lad and asking him questions, Don Bosco learned Bartolomeo, an illiterate orphan of 15, knew neither his prayers nor catechism. When Mass concluded, the instructions commenced. Bartolomeo returned the next week with six others. Soon, growing numbers met every Sunday with Don Bosco teaching these unlearned youth, many of whom did not even know the sign of the cross. It wasn't long before Don Bosco had quite the following. His new apostolate became known as the Oratory of St. Francis de Sales, after the great bishop of Geneva, whose kindness won souls for Christ. 
The spiritually starved boys from around Turin and beyond came in increasing numbers to learn the beautiful truths of the Catholic faith. Don Bosco's fellow priest, Father Borel, soon joined him, and the two began giving evening classes for the boys working in the factories. When Don Bosco completed his studies, the oratory was forced to move. His rowdy crowd of youths met at St. Philomena's Hospice in a small room converted to a chapel. Months later, his group of boys met weekly at a chapel in the local cemetery. When this option ceased, the wandering oratory, 300 strong, met weekly for treks into the countryside. With the approach of winter, rooms were rented, but the oratory was forced to move three more times. Don Bosco gave every hour of every day to his boys. He visited them at work, counseled them in their problems, nursed them in illness, and attended their every need, spiritual and temporal. Opposition to Don Bosco's work came from all sides. Newspapers carried reports decrying the oratory as a menace to public order. Politicians called for an end to these gatherings of street urchins with this poor priest. The clergy complained to the Archbishop of Turin, begging him to reassign Don Bosco to parish work. Don Bosco's certainty of success was given him in a dream. He wrote, Our Lady pointed out to me the spot where three martyrs were put to death. She told me her desire to be honored in a special way in this holy place. Placing her foot on the very spot the first martyr fell, I then saw a numberless throng of boys come forward. A huge church appeared on the spot Our Lady pointed out. Priests and brothers soon came to share in the work. The dream started to become reality when a man rented a large, decrepit shack to Don Bosco. At last, the oratory had a home, which would become permanent. Tragedy struck when Don Bosco collapsed after a strenuous day, stricken with pneumonia. Over the coming weeks, his condition worsened, and the last sacraments were administered. His boys kept a round-the-clock vigil, praying the rosary continuously for his recovery. Asked to pray for his own cure, he replied, only if it be God's will. It seems this was enough, for in two weeks' time, he was back to his labors. Don Bosco's exemplary life and steadfast zeal for souls didn't fail to attract. His spiritual director, St. Joseph Cafasso, prudently instructed him in matters great and small. Through the influence of this holy priest, Don Bosco formed his personal motto, Give me souls, away with the rest. As if in answer to this motto, boys flocked to the new oratory. And in 1851, Don Bosco purchased the building he had rented. The following year, it was torn down and a dormitory was constructed in its place. This oratory continued to grow and within a few years was followed by others. These schools gained the reputation of being known as the best schools for boys in all of Italy. Mama Margarita was now the mother of hundreds as she joined Don Bosco in his efforts until her passing 10 years later. Though the hostile authorities prohibited sales of Catholic textbooks, Don Bosco wrote his own. Teaching trades and practical skills, the saintly teacher never failed to reinforce the lessons of Catholic teaching in every activity. No greater example of Don Bosco's influence exists than the oratory's star pupil, Dominic Savio. Arriving in December 1854, at the age of 12, Dominic quickly endeared himself to the other boys, 
and was a model of every virtue. His very presence discouraged foul language and bad behavior. The young lad consecrated himself to Our Lady and expressed a desire for the priesthood. He instructed his peers in catechism and insisted on frequenting the sacraments. Falling ill in the year 1856 and ordered home by his doctors, the lad stated prophetically, I'll never come back. On his deathbed the following March, his face filled with joy as he shouted, What a beautiful sight I see! He then breathed forth his pure soul to God. Don Bosco recorded all the facts of his student's short life, and St. Dominic Savio would become the patron saint and model for boys all over the world. With the rise of the revolutionary anti-Catholic government in the 1860s, Don Bosco faced battles on many fronts. Multiple times, the government made attempts to expel all religious orders. His city of Turin saw agitation from Protestant pamphleteers. Their erroneous tracts against the papacy and the Eucharist slipped into the pages of Catholic publications. Whenever walking anywhere, alone or with his boys, Don Bosco always carried pamphlets defending the church. His publication, Cattolico Provetuto, was widely circulated in Turin. Readers of his stories of apologetics and sound spiritual advice abounded. To gain support for the Catholic press, he exhorted his readers, My dear friends, the enemies of Catholicism are doing their utmost to undermine our beliefs. We exhort and urge all who cherish the faith of their fathers to join us in defending this most precious gift of God. With these writings, Don Bosco made many enemies, but a faithful friend was sent to help. One night, when coming home, a huge gray dog appeared in his path. The wolf-like animal became friendly and walked him home, but vanished as soon as he entered the oratory's gate. Grigio, the gray one, as Don Bosco called him, would appear when needed to offer protection. The Waldensians, a Protestant sect in Turin, attacked Don Bosco vehemently for his public defense of church teaching. These heretics even paid a group of assassins to ambush Don Bosco after nightfall. A man armed with a club followed after Don Bosco down a dark street as he hastened to reach the oratory. Atop a hill, there was another group of men waiting for him. As he dodged his attackers, Grigio appeared, growling and sprang at the assailants. Terrified, they all ran off into the darkness. Grigio faithfully escorted his master back to the oratory. Even given this fierce opposition, Don Bosco only increased his efforts, issuing strong defenses of the papacy, the real presence, Our Lady's perpetual virginity, and the need for sacramental confession. His rebuttals, published in newspapers, silenced the heretics and brought back to the fold many wayward sheep. His efforts were hailed by fervent Catholics around Europe, in particular by the reigning Pope, Pius IX. At Don Bosco's first visit to Rome, Pius IX expressed enthusiasm at the idea of a new religious order for the formation of youth. Plans were drawn up, and the Congregation of St. Francis de Sales, or Salesians, took form in 1859. A female branch of the order, the Daughters of Mary, Hub of Christians, was founded in 1872. Missionaries were sent to Argentina starting in 1875, followed quickly by other countries. Within a short time, Salesians counted 26 houses in the Americas and 36 houses in Europe. 
requests poured in to meet the saintly founder of the new order. Don Bosco made trips throughout Italy, France, and Spain. The heaven-sent dreams of Don Bosco became a reality. Years of sacrifice and heroic effort in his apostolic labors took their toll. By 1883, Don Bosco's sight had nearly failed him. Father Michael Rua succeeded him as head of the Salesians. By 1887, his legs lacked strength for walking, and by the end of the year, his sufferings prevented him from offering Holy Mass. Though his body was weak, his mind remained as strong as ever. Confined to his room, for the last time he heard the confessions of his boys and gave them fatherly counsel. The final agony began on January 29, 1888, feast of his patron saint, Francis de Sales. A long line formed of priests and students to receive a final blessing. As the bells tolled the morning Angelus on January 31st, John Bosco breathed his last, surrounded by his faithful sons. His final words, uttered days before, remained fresh in their minds. Tell my boys I am waiting for them in heaven. St. John Bosco's greatest counsels that he gave to his boys are as follows. Receive the sacraments often. Be devoted to the Blessed Virgin. Consider bad reading worse than the plague. Avoid bad companions even more than poisonous snakes. Thank you all so much for watching. And if you'd like to see a playlist with all of the episodes we performed on this channel, just click on the link above me here. Oh, and if you'd like to enroll in our Saturday Mass intentions for the promoters of St. John Bosco, just click on this other link. God bless you, and Our Lady keep you. Let's go, boy. What would you do if your public school teacher made fun of you in front of the whole class and then unjustly accused you of cheating on a test? This story is taken from when Don Bosco was around 15 years old and was trying to pursue his studies so that he could fulfill his dream of becoming a priest. Let's see how a saint would handle this situation. The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. Subscribe for new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. The life of a student in those days was far more difficult than it is now. Today, there are many schools and similar institutions where promising students can find shelter and pursue their studies. Not so in the early 1800s when most people were poor. The first problem of rural parents whose sons wished to become priests or get an education was to find them suitable living quarters in the towns or cities. Sometimes two or three students shared a room in a boarding house or friend's house, but for the most part, they lived in tiny attic rooms alone or with a companion. The board or rent was paid with wheat, corn, wine, or perhaps by part-time work. The landlord would provide the food, usually a bowl of soup, or the boy's family would send him a weekly supply of bread. Often, the boys would leave home with several sacks of flour, corn, potatoes, and chestnuts, their food supply for the whole year. No matter how cold the winter, heat was out of the question, since they couldn't afford the prohibitive price of firewood. Poor students had to provide for their needs either by copying manuscripts, or tutoring, or taking some part-time job. Thus, we shall see John spending a good part of his day in things that in no way fostered his studies, 
in order to lessen his mother's financial burden. This explains his habit of studying at night and leading a mode of life he described as dissipated, but which, in view of the results, should rather be considered providential. At first, he made two round trips to school a day, both morning and afternoon, in all some twelve miles, sometimes in terrible weather. The loss of time, of course, that this led to had a detrimental effect on his studies, and soon he changed his schedule, leaving Becky in the morning and returning only in the evening. At Castelnuovo, he would slip into his shoes again and leave his school satchel and his lunch at the house of a Mr. Giovanni Roberto. There he would eat his lunch between classes. In extremely bad weather, he would remain overnight in the village, sleeping in a cubby hole under a staircase where a family had kindly given him permission to take shelter. To keep expenses down, and also to watch over John, Mama Margaret at first agreed to this daily hike to and from school, but since the winter was becoming ever more severe, she soon realized she would have to board and lodge him in Castelnuovo and did so. Castelnuovo was the most important town in the area, and consequently many boys gave themselves airs and considered themselves a cut above the simple folk of the hamlets, whom they looked down upon as socially inferior and ignorant. Thus, in the first days, taking advantage of John's quiet ways, they began to poke fun at him and his clothes. Often they would run after him on tiptoe, tug at the flaps of his jacket, and then run off to a safe distance, passing quips to one another. The pastor must have given him that jacket. Or, it's really the latest style. Could it have belonged to his grandfather? John never lost his temper, but patiently endured their rudeness and their taunts. Sometimes he would turn round to smile at them and say, You rascals, why don't you behave and leave me in peace? Am I bothering you? His classmates also made fun of him and gave him a derisive nickname because of his height among so many smaller boys. But this baiting soon ceased thanks to his good disposition. Then he began to entertain them with his usual light-hearted tricks. A kind mouth multiplies friends and gracious lips prompt friendly greetings, as it says in the book of Sirach. Meanwhile, John was able to carry out his devotions here with greater ease than at Morialdo. Municipal schools were then prevalently religious in character, in accordance with the decrees of the king in 1822. Boys and girls attended separate classes. A crucifix hung prominently in every classroom, and the students prayed together often throughout the day. The first half hour of class was devoted to catechism instruction, as was also the entire afternoon session on Sunday, which ended with the litany of the Blessed Virgin. Teachers had to agree with the pastor concerning the pupils attending mass before class and going to confession once a month, because piety is the path to wisdom. One day, the teacher assigned an Italian composition on Eleazar, who chose to die rather than give scandal by eating pork meat in the times of the Old Testament. John developed the theme so skillfully that nobody could believe he had written it himself. His composition passed from teacher to teacher, and all thought it superb. Everything was wonderful until it fell into the hands of a certain Father Molia. He read it over carefully, and his opinion was that among the educated people in the area, no one was learned enough to write such a fine composition and that consequently it was impossible for young Bosco to have done so. When John heard of this, 
he realized that he had fallen from the good graces of his teacher. Indeed, by one of those strange, inexplicable changes that sometimes take place in the human heart, Father Molia got the idea that it would be better for the young peasant boy of Becky to give up his studies and return to the farm. Why this should happen, only God knows. This new setback again put to the test John's perseverance and trust in God. One day, while this critical teacher was giving a test to determine class rank, John requested permission to do the one assigned to the third-year students. Father Molia burst out laughing. I must say that for a Becky boy, you're a bit pretentious. What good is anyone from Becky? Why don't you quit Latin? You'll never understand a word of it. Use your time looking for mushrooms or birds' nests. That's one thing you should be good for. There's where your true talent lies. I think you'll be a great success at that. Why you're studying Latin at all is really odd to me. But John insisted, and gave no sign of having been stung by those words. But the teacher's reply was even more caustic. However, seeing that John was determined in his request, he finally told him to take whatever test he wanted. He, for one, wasn't going to read the nonsense that John would most certainly write. The third-year students had been given a Latin passage to translate. Within the hour, John turned in his translation. Without even looking at it, the teacher took it, placed it on his desk, and gave John a pitiful smile. But John remained there, facing him. Please, Father, would you look at it and correct my mistakes? Didn't I tell you that Becky boys know nothing? The teacher replied irritatedly. I told you that these things are simply beyond you. At this, several of the pupils jumped up and pleaded with their teacher. Yes, read Bosco's paper, Father, please. Let's hear all the nonsense he has written. Father Molia, who by now had become quite pliable in the hands of his pupils, met their demand. He took up the paper and read it. The translation was correct. As he put it down, he exclaimed, Just as I said, Bosco's a good-for-nothing. He's copied this whole translation from someone else. Obviously, he must have copied it. This certainly isn't his work. John's schoolmate, who had shared the same desk with him and had seen John at work without recourse to books or help from anyone, spoke up in his defense. Father, you say that Bosco copied from someone else. If he did, there would be a composition that would match his. Why don't you look at our work and see if there's any translation that looks like his? This sounded like a reasonable request, and it should certainly have put an end to the matter, but the teacher refused to budge. He sharply reproved the lad who had spoken up. What do you know about it? Haven't you heard me say that anyone from Becky isn't good for anything? There was no way to persuade him of the truth. In his blind prejudice, he cared little about learning the real facts. But the boy who had seen John work on his own translation told his friends exactly what had happened. As a result, John's classmates not only admired his talent, but very highly regarded his humility and dignity in the face of those abusive words. This incident greatly heightened their esteem and admiration for John Bosco and increased his influence among them. Although he possessed an incredible intellect, God would later give him a prophetic insight into what questions were going to be asked on tests, much to the confusion of everyone who witnessed it. But I'm going to save that story for Friday, so please subscribe and come back then. 
If the episode's already been launched by the time you watch this video, it should appear right here. If not, just come back Friday. God bless you, and Our Lady keep you. Can you imagine how amazing it would be if God let you know what questions were going to be on the test the next day at school? That's what happened to St. John Bosco while he attended the public school in Chieti when he was a young man. Let's see how his teacher and classmates reacted to this prophetic foresight. The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. Subscribe for new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. John Bosco was 16 years old and had just received the supernatural dream in which God told him of his mission to do apostolate with the youth. His mother, Margaret, distressed over the fact that John had already lost so much time away from his education, decided to send him to Chieti to attend the public school there in the coming year. She gave him this joyful news with her usual smile and immediately set to work to pack the things he would need. But John, understanding how poor they were, frankly suggested, If you don't mind, mother, let me take two sacks with me and make the rounds of every family in our hamlet. This way I'll make a collection. Margaret gave her consent. This was to be a difficult test for John's pride, but he overcame his reluctance to go begging and faced his humiliation. These were but the first steps along the arduous road he was to follow until his dying day. Humble yourself the more, the greater you are, and you will find favor with God from the book of Sirach. John submitted himself to this humiliation and God exalted him. He knocked at every door in Morialdo. Mothers received him like their own son and children welcomed him like a brother. He told them of the dire straits in which he found himself. They responded by giving him bread, cheese, corn, and a few bits of wheat. Such a meager store of provisions certainly couldn't last him very long. One day, a woman from Becky went to Castelnuovo on some business. In the public square, she loudly deplored the parish priest's inability to help John become a priest. Here was a boy who, in her opinion, could preach far better sermons than all the priests in the parish. Her receptive audience advised her to go to the pastor and just tell him about it. The woman agreed and went straight to the rectory. The pastor, Father Dasano, called upon some wealthy parishioners, collected a sum of money from them, and sent it to Mama Margaret. She accepted it most gratefully, and with it bought John some badly needed clothes. Another concern of Margaret's was to find some truly good family with whom she could board John without worry. Probably on the pastor's advice, she chose the home of Lucy Mata. This woman was from her own village and was now a widow. She was going to Chieti to look after her own son, who was already attending school there. A monthly fee of 21 lire was agreed upon. Since Margaret was unable to pay the full amount, John was to make up for it by performing sundry chores. This would include hauling firewood, fetching water, hanging out the wet laundry, and similar odd jobs. Don Bosco wrote of his time at the public school in Chieti, saying, The first person I met was Father Eustatius Villamberti of Happy Memory, who gave me much good advice on how to keep out of trouble. He also asked me to serve his mass and thus provided more opportunities for giving me good advice. 
He introduced me to the principal and to my other teachers. Meanwhile, classes had begun. Since the schooling I had received until then had been of a random character, fragmentary and superficial, even though it had provided me with useful knowledge, I was advised to enter a grade corresponding today to the preparatory course for the first year of high school. My age and size made me stand out among my classmates, and I was anxious to find a way out of this situation. After two months, I managed to reach the head of my class, took an examination, and was promoted to the first year of high school. I was very happy because my new classmates were somewhat older and more mature. Two more months passed, during which I succeeded several times in being at the head of my class. Another exception was made for me. I took an examination and was promoted to the second year of high school. However, Joseph Sima, my instructor, was a very strict disciplinarian. Upon seeing a student as tall and husky as himself come to his class in the middle of the school year, he jokingly remarked to the whole class, this boy is either a numbskull or a genius. Which do you think? Disconcerted by his severe appearance, I replied, I'm something between the two. I just want to learn and make headway in my studies. My reply pleased him, and he said, If you're willing to learn, you're in good hands, and I shall keep you busy. Don't be afraid, and if you find yourself in difficulties, let me know at once. I'll straighten things out. I thanked him with all my heart. I was in that class for about two months when a minor episode caused much talk about me. One day, the teacher was discussing the life of Egesilus by Cornelius Nepos. I didn't have the book with me because I had forgotten it at home. To cover up my forgetfulness, I kept Donatus's grammar open in front of me. Not knowing what to do while listening to the teacher, I turned the pages now this way, now that. Some companions noticed it. There was some giggling and then laughter. This was a breach of discipline. What's the matter? asked the teacher. What's wrong? Tell me. Since all eyes were turned upon me, he ordered me to read over the passage and put the words in proper sequence for translation and then repeat the explanation he had given. I stood up, still holding my grammar, and after repeating the passage from memory, I recited the words in their logical sequence with all the comments the teacher had made shortly before. When I was through, my companions almost instinctively cried out in admiration and loudly applauded. The teacher was fuming, because this was the first time in his experience that he had been unable to control the class. He tried to rap me on the head, but I dodged the blow. Then, resting his hand on my book, he asked those sitting near me the reason for such an outburst. I was about to tell him everything respectfully, but the others broke in, Bosco had Donatus's grammar in front of him all the time, but he recited and explained the passage as if he were reading from Cornelius. The teacher took Donatus's grammar from me and made me continue for a couple of paragraphs. Then, suddenly switching from anger to amazement and then admiration, he said, I shall forgive all your negligence because of your amazing memory. You're a lucky boy. Make good use of such talent. During those high school years, John, in addition to his intelligence and memory, had yet another secret talent, extraordinary and very valuable. Such was the opinion of his former classmates who told us the following incidents. But before we hear about this extraordinary grace from God, 
I'd like to remind you that if you'd like to enroll in our Saturday Mass intentions for the promoters of St. John Bosco, just click on the link in the description below. Or you can wait till the end of the video and click on the Mass logo that appears on the screen. It's a beautiful Mass said in the traditional Byzantine rite for all of your intentions. You don't have to become a monthly donor to have a Mass prayed for you, but if you do, you could receive excellent books written by St. John Bosco like this one, Sacred History. And there are many other things as well, but you can read all about it if you click on the link. Thanks be to God, this channel is somehow helping people, even Salesians, as you can see in this comment which says, I'm a Salesian, but I'm learning much about Don Bosco. So please help me keep this channel ad-free and spread the message of Don Bosco far and wide. One night, John dreamed that his teacher had given a monthly test to determine class rank and that he was doing it. The moment he awoke, he jumped out of bed, wrote out the test, a Latin passage, and began translating it with the assistance of a priest, a friend of his. Believe it or not, that very morning, the teacher did give a test, and it was the same Latin passage John had dreamed about. Thus, quite quickly, and without needing a dictionary, he translated it as he had done after awaking from his dream. Of course, the result was amazing. When the teacher questioned him, he candidly told him what had happened to the teacher's great amazement. On another occasion, John handed in his test so quickly that the teacher seriously doubted that the boy could have managed all its grammatical problems in such a short time. So he went over the test very carefully. He was amazed to find it totally correct and asked to see his first draft. John gave it to him, and again the teacher was speechless. He had prepared that test only the night before. It had turned out rather lengthy, and therefore the teacher had dictated only half of it. Yet in John's composition book, the test was written out in its entirety, down to the last word. How could it be explained? John couldn't have copied it overnight, nor could he possibly have broken into the teacher's house which was a considerable distance from where John lived. What was it? He confessed, well, I dreamed it. It was for this reason that his schoolmates nicknamed him the Dreamer. When asked about his dreams, Don Bosco never denied them. Furthermore, he told the Salesians of many other similar happenings, some really very marvelous, about 150 of them. Don Bosco and the word dream are now heavily associated with one another. If this biography were to ignore this fact, his former pupils by the thousands would have asked, what about his dreams? It's truly astounding how this phenomenon went on in his life for 60 years. After a day marked by many worrisome problems and hard work, he would no sooner rest his weary head on his pillow than he would enter a new world of ideas and visions that would exhaust him till dawn. No other man could have endured this continuous shifting from a natural to a preternatural or even supernatural level without serious mental injury. Don Bosco could. He was always calm and deliberate in all his actions. Thank you all so much for watching, and if you're interested in becoming a promoter of St. John Bosco, just click on the link over here. God bless you, and Our Lady keep you.
St. John Bosco would say anything he could think of to help the boys understand his point during sermons, even if it meant preaching about monkeys. He wasn't above using seemingly childlike parables for sermons, even for adults, as long as it helped to illustrate the point, much like our Lord's parable about the lilies of the field. The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. Subscribe for new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. In September 1850, Don Bosco arranged for 130 boys to make a seven-day retreat at the Minor Seminary in Giovanno, which was normally empty during the summer vacation. The oratory boarders and a sizable contingent of boys from the three festive oratories obtained permission from their families or their employers and made the journey on foot. Don Bosco had providentially obtained a generous donation from the Society of St. Paul to cover the expenses of the retreat. He had arranged for two other priests to preach besides himself and asked a third to help with confessions. To make the retreat as helpful to as many souls as possible, the inhabitants of the town were also invited to participate, and many took advantage of the opportunity. Everyone fondly remembered the fatherly care Don Bosco showed to them and to all the boys on that occasion patiently bearing with the youthful thoughtlessness of many, but insisting upon and obtaining silence and attention at the appointed times. Of course, there were very many happy and joyful recreation periods, which was what most of the boys looked forward to. But during these recreation periods, Don Bosco was mostly interested in finding out what the boys had learned from the sermons. On one occasion, as he was surrounded by many boys, some of whom were from the local parish, he asked about the topic of his morning's instruction. He had discussed how to not give scandal in speech, word, or deed. Keep in mind that when St. John Bosco was a boy, he could memorize the sermon word for word. The first boy he singled out didn't know. The second seemed embarrassed, so Don Bosco questioned a few more. The youngsters scratched their heads but could give no satisfactory reply. Oh my, exclaimed Don Bosco. Was I talking Chinese or were you all asleep? Then one of the smaller boys piped up, wait, I remember. What do you remember? Oh, I remember the monkeys. Don Bosco had told them a tale. A peddler was going from village to village trying to sell his wares, which he carried in a small display case strapped to his shoulders. However, night overtook him before he reached a certain town. It was summer. The pale moon shone in the sky, and the peddler, weary after his long trek, decided to spend the night under a large tree. He opened his case, and taking out a white cap, of which he had quite a good supply, he put it on his head as protection against the evening chill and fell asleep. There were a number of monkeys up in that tree. The sight of a man sleeping with a white cap aroused their instincts. One of them slipped down very quietly, poked around in the box which had been left open, pulled out a cap, put it on its head, and climbed the tree again. The other monkeys did likewise, and their mischievousness ended only when they had emptied the box entirely. The merchant slept peacefully throughout the night, and so did the monkeys. With white caps on their heads, they were quite a sight. At dawn, the merchant arose and prepared to resume his journey. Imagine his amazement and grief at seeing that all his caps had been stolen. I've been robbed, he cried. I'm ruined. But on second thought, realizing that only the caps were missing, he came to the conclusion that it couldn't have been a robbery. I don't understand it, he told himself. 
Just then, he chanced to glance upward. Ah, he cried, look at the rascals. He tried to frighten them into returning his wares by flinging stones at them. But the monkeys merely leaped lightly from branch to branch, holding on to their caps. After many useless efforts, the poor peddler clutched his hair in utter despair and angrily flung the cap he was wearing to the ground. The monkeys instantly did likewise, and down rained the white caps to the delight of the harassed peddler. Don Bosco had drawn the moral that boys behave much in the same way as monkeys. If they see others doing good, they also do it. If they see someone do evil, they imitate it even more quickly. He had concluded by stressing the utter need of setting an edifying example for boys and of keeping them far away from any scandal. Upon realizing that the boys barely remembered certain points he had made in his sermons, Don Bosco took great pains thereafter to intersperse his sermons with concrete examples and parables to capture their imagination and by this means to enlighten their minds and stir their hearts. He found this approach very effective. His preaching was animated with ardent concern for the salvation of souls. One day he was so moved by his own words that he broke into sobs and had to step down from the pulpit. Humbly and with some embarrassment, he remarked to Ascanio Savio, I just couldn't control myself. He had to give voice to what was in his heart. But the effect on his young listeners was beyond words. On the last day, as a reward for their cooperation, Don Bosco took them on a grand hike to St. Michael's Abbey and Shrine, which involved a climb up a steep mountain road. It was an unforgettable hike with a beautiful view. This retreat also gave some boys a clearer insight into Don Bosco's singular virtues. He used to suggest special prayers, or even vows on occasion, to those who came to him to obtain cures or other favors from God. Young Felix Revilio had been suffering for several months from malaria. It had so undermined his health that the doctors had declared him to be consumptive. Don Bosco brought him to Giavano along with the others for the retreat. Revilio himself told us that, after his confession, Don Bosco suggested that he make a vow to go to confession every week during the succeeding six months. At the same time, he suggested additional acts of devotion. This advice proved more helpful than all the medicines he had been taking, and in a short time, the boy recovered completely. Another young man, whose name we shall not disclose, he was one of the oldest at the oratory, about 27, also made this spiritual retreat. One morning he walked into the sacristy, just as Don Bosco was about to go to the altar for mass. Joseph Brosio, holding the missile, was ready to serve, when this fellow rudely snatched it from him and rushed out. Don Bosco, ever prompt to forgive, saw Brosio flush with anger, and he motioned him with a look to restrain himself. After mass, he took Brosio aside and said, it was good of you to yield. You'll soon see what kind of fellow he is. Unfortunately, Don Bosco had guessed correctly. Shortly thereafter, this young man stopped going to the oratory. He joined the heretical sect of the Waldensians, and he often prowled about the oratory to frighten the boys away from Don Bosco. But the saint had already informed Brosio of the young ruffian's conduct and asked him to be on the lookout. One day, he showed up at the playground gate, armed with a long stiletto which he was prepared to use on anyone trying to bar his way. 
a young boy ran to call Brosio, while the rest, greatly terrified, raced to safety. Brosio walked up to him and asked him to leave, at first gently, and then in sterner language. Words were of no avail, for the man was drunk and obviously ready for a fight. Therefore, Brosio wisely withdrew and watched him from a safe distance. It wasn't long thereafter that the ruffian fell into the hands of the law. Don Bosco, called to testify against him, requested that the charges be dropped. He merely asked the court that police protection be provided for himself and the boys of the oratory. The culprit was subsequently banished from Turin. Thank you all so much for watching, and if you'd like to hear about St. John Bosco's prophetic ability to know what questions were going to be asked for tests at school when he was a young boy, just click on the video here. God bless you, and Our Lady keep you. Today is the feast of St. Cecilia, and I honestly can't think of a better version of her story than the one told by St. John Bosco to his oratory boys, because he had to make it very lively and interesting in order for them to pay attention and understand. So here is the true account of the martyrdom of St. Cecilia. The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. Subscribe for new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Don Bosco began, Under Emperor Alexander Severus, the church suffered severe persecution. To avoid capture, Pope Urban I took refuge in the catacombs in an area three miles from Rome. Catacombs are underground cemeteries where martyrs were buried and also where Christians hid when persecuted. During the pontificate of Urban I, there lived a young lady belonging to one of the noblest families of Rome. Her name was Cecilia. She was secretly a Christian, while all her relatives were pagans. She was very fond of music and played the organ, Cantantibus Organis, Cecilia Domino de Cantabat. To the accompaniment of the organ, Cecilia sang God's praises. She desired nothing more eagerly than to give herself to him, and prayed, May my heart be ever immaculate, that I be not confounded. This maiden had consecrated herself to Jesus Christ, vowing virginity all her life. Her parents, however, had decided to marry her to a noble youth named Valerian. When Cecilia learned of this, she was very disturbed, and she thought of ways to foil the plan. She kept to her rooms, shunned amusements, and sought comfort in reading the Holy Gospels, which she always kept close at hand. She never ceased praying for assistance in her predicament. One day she felt suddenly full of courage, and inspired to abandon herself with unwavering trust to her beloved heavenly spouse, Jesus. I am happy and tranquil, she exclaimed. I know what I shall do. Meantime, her wedding day was approaching. When Valerian came to visit her, she drew him aside and said to him, Valerian, I have a secret to tell you. Go ahead and tell me, Valerian eagerly replied. You can trust me. First, promise that you'll never tell. I give you my word. Then Cecilia went on, Valerian, I have consecrated myself to a heavenly spouse. Were you to sully my purity, the angel that is ever at my side would immediately slay you. You have an angel guarding you, you say? I can't see him. Would you like to? Very much so. Then you must first believe in Jesus Christ, Son of God, who, in order to save us, 
came down from heaven and shed his blood for us. You must believe that there is but one God, creator of heaven and earth and of everything in them, and that this God rewards the good and punishes the wicked. Afterward, you must be washed in purifying waters, and only then will you be able to see my guardian angel. Valerian had never heard of Jesus Christ, but he was very eager to see Cecilia's angel. To whom must I go to be purified? he asked. You must take the Appian Way and go three miles out of the city. There you will meet beggars. Ask them, Where is the venerable old man? Follow them. They will take you to him. After you have been purified, come back, and you will see my angel. Valerian did as he was told. Venerable old man was the Christian's name for the Pope, lest the pagans discover his hideout. Valerian arrived at the three-mile marker, and there found a group of beggars, who were not beggars at all, but Christians in disguise. Where is the venerable old man? he asked. Follow me, one of them answered. They walked a short distance to the opening of a cave, concealed by a clump of trees and hanging branches. Lifting these, the guide led Valerian into a dark passage, lit a lamp, and then went on along a narrow corridor. After a few turns, they descended a steep flight of stairs, which took them into the depths of the earth. Here the catacombs started, stretching for miles and miles. The guide at once led Valerian to Pope Urban, who was seated on a raised armchair, surrounded by his clergy. The Pope made him feel at ease by amiably and kindly asking him what had brought him there. I am Cecilia's bridegroom, he answered. She told me that an angel stands at her side to guard her, and that to see him, as I desire, I must first come to you to be purified. Deeply moved, Pope Urban knelt in prayer, followed by the crowd. Suddenly there appeared a venerable old man of majestic and noble bearing. Overawed at this unexpected experience with the supernatural, Valerian fell to the ground. Who was this heavenly personage? It was St. Paul the Apostle, who had come to comfort Urban in his tribulations and to encourage Valerian. Rise, Valerian, and be of good heart, St. Paul said to the latter. Though a brave soldier, Valerian still trembled like a leaf. Hearing his name called, he raised his head a little, looked at the mysterious personage, and finally stood up. St. Paul then gave him a book, saying, Take and read. Valerian opened it and read, One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God omnipotent, creator of heaven and earth, one Lord and Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Do you believe these things? St. Paul asked. Yes, Valerian replied. I believe them with all my heart. If you do, then you may be baptized, and when you return to Cecilia, you will be able to see her angel. After saying this, the apostle vanished. Pope Urban baptized the new convert, clothed him in a white robe, and, since it was just about dawn, sent him, thus garbed, back to Cecilia. When Valerian arrived at her palace, he found there many clients who had come to wish the master good day and receive his bounty. Without trouble from the servants, Valerian walked in and made directly for the chamber of the Holy Virgin. He stopped at the door, drew the curtain a little aside, and beheld an astonishing sight. Cecilia, kneeling in prayer, and a resplendent angel standing at her side, filling the room with light. The beauty of his countenance, the splendor and wealth of his apparel, 
and his multicolored wings defied description. The upper part of his wings showed a marvelous superhuman interlocking of plumes, while the lower part sparkled with colors like a rainbow. At such a sight, Valerian hesitated at first, but then, as if getting used to his heavenly visitors because of his recent experience in the catacombs, took courage. He went in and knelt at the angel's side, who thus stood between him and Cecilia. He wished to join her in prayer, but he could hardly concentrate, dazzled as he was by the splendor of the angel. Presently the latter produced two most beautiful crowns of roses and placed them on the heads of Cecilia and Valerian, saying, Receive these heavenly crowns and keep them fresh with the purity of your hearts and holiness of life. Your prayers have been heard. Confidently ask for whatever you wish, and it shall be granted you. At this Valerian said, I ask for the conversion of my brother Tiburtius. Granted, the angel replied, and he vanished. At the same time, Tiburtius' steps were heard approaching. In a few moments he entered the room. What fragrance, he exclaimed. What flowers have you got? I have never smelled the like before. No wonder, Valerian replied. This fragrance is not of earth. Only a few moments ago, an angel placed a crown of heavenly roses on our heads. Crown of roses? I can smell the fragrance, but I can't see the flowers. Where are they? Cecilia then said to him, If you wish to see our crowns, you must first believe that there is but one God, creator of heaven and earth, and that this God sent us his holy son, Jesus, who founded a religion totally pure and holy. Then you must be purified by a water capable of cleansing your soul from every stain. But who will give me that soul-cleansing water? A venerable old man called Urban. What? Urban? The one whom people call the Christian's Pope? The very one. I will have nothing to do with him. If the Praetorians were to find me out, they would put me to death. Besides, such horrible things are said about Christians. Rotten lies, my dear Tiburtius. Urban is a good man. In all my life I have never met a more amiable, a more simple, and yet a more learned person. Go and speak to him, and you will not regret it. Then Cecilia took up the argument. Well-educated as she was, she proved from reason, revelation, and the pagan philosophers themselves the existence of a future life, the eternal happiness that awaits the good, and the equally eternal misery into which the wicked shall be plunged. Tiburtius, intelligent and good at heart, moved by the grace of God, saw the truth and embraced it. Unafraid of death at the hands of the Romans, he exclaimed, Tell me where I can find Urban. I will take you to him, said Valerian. I assure you, Tiburtius, that after this purification, you will experience a joy never before felt, such as no human mind can ever conceive. They went to the catacombs. Tiburtius was baptized, and he, too, saw the angel. Martyrs Valerian and Tiburtius were beheaded, and the ruler wanted to confiscate the property of those who had been executed, but when he was told that St. Cecilia had already given her remaining wealth to the poor and had converted 400 men, he ordered her execution. For three days they tormented her in an overheated bathhouse with heat and steam. However, she was sustained by the grace of God. Seeing that St. Cecilia was still alive, 
they sent an experienced executioner to chop off her head. But though he struck her three times, she miraculously lived. At this, he fled in terror. Not that he would have been able to strike her again, because Roman law allowed only three whacks from the executioner's axe or sword. So as the Lord laid in the belly of the earth before his resurrection, the holy martyr Cecilia laid on the cold stone floor fully conscious for three days, encouraging those around her to not sway from the faith. Finally, she died lying on her right side with her hands crossed, the position of her fingers symbolizing the Holy Trinity. Three extended on her right hand and one on the left, three persons in one God. Whereupon, she was buried in the catacomb of St. Callistus near Rome. Thus ended the life of one of the most extraordinary martyrs in church history. Thank you all so much for watching, and if you'd like to see a playlist with all of the stories that you really need to hear about St. John Bosco, just click on the link above me here. God bless you, and Our Lady keep you. Boy, it's a rainy night. Walking on this trail reminds me of when St. John Bosco was lost in the woods and his guardian angel dog, Grigio, had to save him from being savagely mauled. The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. Now, it must be said that St. John Bosco rarely spoke of Grigio, the gray dog, of his own accord. It was only when his oratory boys begged him for stories of this furry guardian angel. Grigio, or the Grey One, would protect our saint from hordes of anti-Catholic assassins, like masons or heretics, who wanted to kill him for spreading his orthodox teachings in numerous publications. In 1867, when Don Bosco gave this account, it was only because the oratory boys were in great need of cheering up. The saint had just prophesied the death of Maestro, an oratory student, as we've already heard in a previous episode named Death's Messenger. None of the students knew that Maestro was the dying boy, so it was quite a shock when he passed away. In those sad days, feeling the need to rid themselves of melancholy thoughts, the pupils began asking Don Bosco about the mysterious dog, which had, on several occasions, saved him from danger. Don Bosco narrated several incidents of his life with a good deal of humor, and then went on to describe the heroism of Grigio to the boy's great excitement and merriment. The dog first started appearing in 1852. When they asked how long it had been since he had last seen the dog, he replied that Grigio had appeared and escorted him just the year before, very late at night in 1866. At that time, it was very common to travel miles and miles on foot when one couldn't hire a carriage or a horse, and Don Bosco couldn't find either. Night was soon upon him, dark and cloudy, though without rain yet. The path took him through robber-infested areas where farmhouses and vineyards were guarded by ferocious mastiffs. To make matters worse, he wandered off the path because of hedges and obstacles and had to make wide detours. Heavily perspiring, he came to the foot of a steep hill and plodded upward. Soon he had to halt and catch his breath. How I wish Grigio were here, he exclaimed. He would get me out of this mess. 
One would think that the mysterious dog was there listening, for he heard a short bark, then another, and lo, there was Grigio excitedly dashing down the hill and joyfully leaping all over him. The gray dog resembled a flock dog or guard hound by his size and shape. No one, not even Don Bosco, ever knew where it came from or its owner. An eyewitness once described him, he was a dog of a truly formidable appearance. He looked almost like a wolf with an elongated muzzle, straight ears, gray fur, and was one meter tall. The dog led the way for nearly two miles and got Don Bosco to where he was expected. As they passed one farmhouse, two huge dogs furiously lunged at Don Bosco, but in no time Grigio took them on and so badly mauled them that they had to retreat with painful howls. This brought their masters out to see what had happened. When Don Bosco reached the house where he was expected, all were amazed to see such a handsome dog and they bombarded Don Bosco with questions as to where he had found him. When they sat down to supper, Grigio withdrew to a corner. Let's feed Grigio now, Mr. Molia remarked at the end of the meal, but to everybody's surprise, Grigio was nowhere to be found, though the doors and windows were locked and the farm dogs had given no alarm of any sort. A search was made of the upper rooms, but Grigio had vanished and was never seen again in those parts. The Salesians wrote of Grigio, we can advisedly say that the story of this dog not only intrigues us, but also touches on the supernatural, especially in view of the fact that Grigio at times was visible to Don Bosco alone. Father John Garino wrote, in 1862, one Saturday afternoon at two o'clock, Don Bosco asked me to go with him into town. Just as he was about to step past the oratory gate, he seemed unable to move. I stood right behind him. After making several attempts to get left or right, he gave up. I can't get out, he said, turning to me. Grigio won't let me. Don Bosco had to stay home that day. On the next day, I heard rumors that someone had planned to ambush Don Bosco and kill him on the previous day. There was even a time when Grigio showed up 30 years after his last apparition, removing all doubt as to his angelic character. Thank you all so much for watching, and if you'd like to hear more about this guardian angel dog, just click on this video. Don't forget to come back for new Don Bosco stories every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. God bless you, and Our Lady keep you. I'd like to share a terrifying story from St. John Bosco's youth, which, although brief, shows how brave he was and that he took no stock in superstitions. The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. Subscribe for new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. St. John Bosco's mother, Margaret, had always been careful never to tell her children terrifying stories that might overexcite their imagination. Unfortunately, many mothers imprudently do so, and thereby rear cowards instead of men of courage. One autumn, John went for a brief vacation to the home of his mother's family in Caprilio, where Margaret customarily spent several days to help with the vintage. His grandfather, uncles, and aunts gave him a hearty welcome. 
As night drew on and they were waiting for supper, someone began to spin a tale about how, in times gone by, they used to hear different weird sounds coming from the attic. The sounds were either of long or brief duration, but they always had a hair-raising effect on those who heard them. Everyone maintained that only the devil himself would have been able to upset people in such a manner. John refused to believe such idle tales, and insisted that it was all due to some natural cause, such as the wind, a polecat, or something like that. Since it was already dark, someone lit the lamps. The room in which they were talking had a ceiling with many rafters. This formed the floor of a large attic, used as a barn and storehouse for other crops. Suddenly they heard the noise of a falling object, like a big basket of bowls, followed by a slow, dull sound that traversed the space above their heads from one corner to another. Everyone stopped talking, and a somber silence fell on the group. When the sinister sound was repeated, their faces grew pale. "'What can it be?' they whispered to one another. "'Let's go outside,' Margaret said to her son. "'Come on, a sudden fright might do you harm.' "'No,' John said. "'I want to see what it is.' The noise continued at intervals, and given the hour it was so inexplicable as to be terrifying indeed. They all stared at each other quizzically. "'Did anybody leave the door open?' someone asked. "'No, it's locked,' answered another. "'What could it be, then?' John stood up resolutely, lit a lamp, and said, "'Let's go and take a look.' "'Listen,' everyone said. "'Let's wait for tomorrow. It's prudent.' "'What? Are you afraid?' interrupted John. And so saying, he made his way to the attic." John pushed open the door. He entered the attic. He held the lantern up and looked about him. He could see nothing. All was still. Some of his relatives peeped in from the door, only one or two having dared to enter after him. Then they all gave a startled cry, and some fled. Something very strange was going on. A wheat sieve in a corner was moving of its own accord and advancing toward them, coming to a sudden halt in response to their terror-stricken shrieks. But after the shouts died down, it resumed its movements and didn't halt until it had reached John's feet. The boy stepped back. Then he handed his lantern to the person nearest him, who, terrified, let it fall, plunging the room into darkness. He called for another lantern and stood it on top of an old chair. Then, bending down, he touched the sieve. Don't touch it! Don't touch it, someone yelled from the doorway. John paid no heed and lifted it off the ground. A great roar of laughter filled the room. Underneath the sieve stood a big hen. This is what had happened. Some grains of wheat had become lodged in the grill of the sieve that was tilted against the wall. Lured by the grains, a hen had begun to pick at these tempting morsels of food. The sieve had unexpectedly toppled over and had imprisoned the hen. Captive and hungry, the hen had tried to escape, and because it was unable to rid itself of the great weight, it had battered itself against the sides. Thus the hen had pushed its not-too-heavy prison from one end of the attic to the other. The silence of the night, the floor made of rafters, and the general fear had given the noise a particularly eerie quality. 
Happiness succeeded their panic, for which the hen paid dearly. Grabbing the bird, Margaret said, You won't frighten us like that anymore. So saying, she wrung its neck, and then plucked and cooked it. The goblins in the cook pot, they all shouted in unison, as they prepared to sit down, quite unexpectedly, to a magnificent supper. No one felt like going to bed, so after having been freed of their fear, they spent the night in a frolicsome mood as they watched their vats and barrels. Thank you all so much for watching, and if you'd like to enroll in our Saturday Mass intentions for the promoters of St. John Bosco, just click on the logo above me here. God bless you, and Our Lady keep you.